This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Isaac Bashevis Singer's story, The Cafeteria, which was published in The New Yorker in 1968. Almost every day on my walk after lunch, I pass the funeral parlor that waits for us and all our ambitions and illusions. Sometimes I imagine that the funeral parlor is also a kind of cafeteria where one gets a quick eulogy or cottage on the way to eternity. The story was chosen by Rivka Galchin, who is the author of the novel Atmospheric Disturbances and the story collection American Innovations. She's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2008. Hi, Rivka. Hi, Deborah. Now, you were on the podcast in 2010, and at that point you chose a story by Leonard Michaels. This time you've picked Isaac Bashevis Singer, and I wonder if there is, for you, any continuity between those two writers. You know, it's interesting because I myself was reflecting on that because there's a, you know, they're both sort of male Jewish writers, and I hadn't really done that on purpose. But I was thinking on a deeper level what the continuity might be, and there is a way in which they're both kind of comic writers. I.B. Singer is, in this story in particular, much more punchline-y than I think of Leonard Michaels ever being, but I feel that they both, I call it the Seinfeld-Tolstoy continuum, (laughs) where you can sort of see that in some way, like, the joke is a pretty good vessel for history, tragedy. It kind of, in a weird way, can contain it in a certain way, and I think they're both writers who work along that line and follow, for lack of a better term, a kind of neurotic habit or a quirky worldview or way of being, and mine it a little bit and show that it has depth and isn't just like a surface quirkiness. Yeah, I think there's also a bit of sort of mystical surrealism in both of them, kind of a borscht belt mysticism. (laughs) (laughs) What has Singer meant to you as a writer? For me, it was always sort of news from a distant shore. I grew up in a Jewish family, but in Norman, Oklahoma, and even the man who ran the local Hillel was not Jewish, just someone interested <laughs> in Judaism because there simply there just were hardly there weren't enough. There weren't enough Jews there. <laughs> and so in a funny way I didn't think of it, but whenever I would sort of encounter a writer who was obviously Jewish and is thinking about this particular group of people in the kind of center of the New York Jewish humor, for me it was sort of news from something that I felt was like relevant to me and yet I had never encountered in my Mm -hmm. whole life. So I do think that I listened to it in a different way. How did you first come across his stories? You know, I wish I could say I remember, but I think the first I.B. Singer I read was In My Father's Court, which Uh was a nonfiction piece of his. And then I remember seeing his play, Meshuggah, and it took a long time before I got to his stories because he's so prolific and his work doesn't line up. He has many different voices, and actually the short story voice is my favorite. Because it's the Because the funniest. it's funniest. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for me, there's something, when something's in the form of a joke, it, you can't cheat. There's no, you can't fail. Either it makes you laugh or it doesn't. Now, this particular story, The Cafeteria, as you said, it's very funny. It also involves the Holocaust. It involves quite depressing death, madness. It's not all fun and games. Yeah, I think a perfect example is the way he brings in a character briefly, the the love interest's father, who has no legs and has no family. And, and, and he comes in for comic relief. He's actually the comic relief, yeah. even though he's had such a difficult life. And uh, I guess I admire the intelligence who sees that as not 
a cheat, but in fact something accurate. You told me that you had recently taught the cafeteria to your students. Why did you pick this story to teach to them, and what was the focus? It's in a course on mysteries, but obviously fairly broadly interpreted. And I like the idea of this as a series of kind of investigators who are working very hard to maintain murkiness and vagueness. The main character seems to be investigating his love interest and what she's saying and what's happened to her, but in fact he maintains sort of a useful cloud and vagueness, both on her and then on his own backstory. And you see moments in the story where he somehow managed to not see something. Even his own apartment, the way that it's so messy, you understand that it's a way to avoid finding out what would be there if you cleaned it all up. Well, let's find out now. And we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Rivka Galchin reading The Cafeteria by Isaac Bashevis Singer. The Cafeteria. Even though I've reached the point where a great part of my earnings is given away in taxes, I still have the habit of eating in cafeterias when I am by myself. I like to take a tray with a tin knife, fork, spoon, and paper napkin and to choose at the counter the food I enjoy. Besides, I meet there the Landslight from Poland, as well as all kinds of literary beginners and readers who know Yiddish. The moment I sit down at a table, they come over. Hello, Aaron, they greet me, and we talk about Yiddish literature, the Holocaust, the state of Israel, and often about acquaintances who were eating rice pudding or stewed prunes the last time I was here and are already in their graves. Since I seldom read a paper, I learn this news only later. Each time, I am startled, but at my age, one has to be ready for such tidings. The food sticks in the throat, we look at one another in confusion, and our eyes ask mutely, whose turn is next? Soon we begin to chew again. I'm often reminded of a scene in a film about Africa. A lion attacks a herd of zebras and kills one. The frightened zebras run for a while, and then they stop and start to graze again. Do they have a choice? I cannot spend too long with these Yiddishists, because I am always busy. I am writing a novel, a story, an article. I have to lecture today or tomorrow. My date book is crowded with all kinds of appointments for weeks and months in advance. It can happen that an hour after I leave the cafeteria, I am on a train to Chicago or flying to California. But meanwhile, we converse in the mother language, and I hear of intrigues and pettiness about which, from a moral point of view, it would be better not to be informed. Everyone tries in his own way with all his means to grab as many honors and as much love and prestige as he can. None of us learns from all these deaths. Old age does not cleanse us. We don't repent at the gate of hell. I've been moving around in this neighborhood for over 30 years, as long as I lived in Poland. I know each block, each house. There has been little building here on Uptown Broadway in the last decades, and I have the illusion of having put down roots here. I have spoken in most of the synagogues. They know me in some of the stores and in the vegetarian restaurants. Women with whom I have had affairs live on the side streets. Even the pigeons know me. The moment I come out with a bag of feed, they begin to fly toward me from blocks away. It is an area that stretches from 96th Street to 72nd Street and from Central Park to Riverside Drive. 
Almost every day on my walk after lunch, I pass the funeral parlor that waits for us and all our ambitions and illusions. Sometimes I imagine that the funeral parlor is also a kind of cafeteria where one gets a quick eulogy or Kaddish on the way to eternity. The cafeteria people I meet are mostly men, old bachelors like myself, would-be writers, retired teachers, some with dubious doctorate titles, a rabbi without a congregation, a painter of Jewish themes, a few translators, all immigrants from Poland or Russia. I seldom know their names. One of them disappears, and I think he is already in the next world. Suddenly he reappears, and he tells me that he has tried to settle in Tel Aviv or Los Angeles. Again, he eats his rice pudding, sweetens his coffee with saccharin. He has a few more wrinkles, but he tells the same stories and makes the same gestures. It may happen that he takes a paper from his pocket and reads me a poem he has written. It was in the 50s that a woman appeared in the group who looked younger than the rest of us. She must have been in her early 30s. She was short, slim, with a girlish face, brown hair that she wore in a bun, a short nose, and dimples in her cheeks. Her eyes were hazel, actually of an indefinite color. She dressed in a modest European way. She spoke Polish, Russian, and an idiomatic Yiddish. She always carried Yiddish newspapers and magazines. She had been in a prison camp in Russia and had spent some time in the camps in Germany before she obtained a visa for the United States. The men all hovered around her. They didn't let her pay the check. They gallantly brought her coffee and cheesecake. They listened to her talk and jokes. She had returned from the devastation still gay. She was introduced to me. Her name was Esther. I didn't know if she was unmarried, a widow, a divorcee. She told me she was working in a factory where she sorted buttons. This fresh young woman did not fit into the group of elderly has-beens. It was also hard to understand why she couldn't find a better job than sorting buttons in New Jersey. But I didn't ask too many questions. She told me that she had read my writing while still in Poland and later in the camps in Germany after the war. She said to me, you are my writer. The moment she uttered these words, I imagined I was in love with her. We were sitting alone. The other man at our table had gone to make a telephone call. And I said, for such words, I must kiss you. Well, what are you waiting for? She gave me both a kiss and a bite. I said, you are a ball of fire. Yes, fire from Gehenna. A few days later, she invited me to her home. She lived on a street between Broadway and Riverside Drive with her father, who had no legs and sat in a wheelchair. His legs had been frozen in Siberia. He had tried to run away from one of Stalin's slave camps in the winter of 1944. He looked like a strong man, had a head of thick white hair, a ruddy face, and eyes full of energy. He spoke in a swaggering fashion, with boyish boastfulness and a cheerful laugh. In an hour, he told me his story. He was born in white Russia, but he had lived long years in Warsaw, Lodz, and Vilna. In the beginning of the 30s, he became a communist and soon afterward a functionary in the party. In 1939, he escaped to Russia with his daughter. His wife and the other children remained in Nazi-occupied Warsaw. In Russia, somebody denounced him as a Trotskyite, 
and he was sent to mine gold in the north. The GPU sent people there to die. Even the strongest could not survive the cold and hunger for more than a year. They were exiled without a sentence. They died together. Zionists, Bundists, members of the Polish Socialist Party, Ukrainian nationalists, and just refugees, all caught because of the labor shortage. They often died of scurvy or beriberi. Boris Merkin, Esther's father, spoke about this as if it were a big joke. He called the Stalinists outcasts, bandits, sycophants. He assured me that had it not been for the United States, Hitler would have overrun all of Russia. He told how prisoners tricked the guards to get an extra piece of bread or a double portion of watery soup, and what methods were used in picking lice. Esther called out, Father, enough! What's the matter? Am I lying? One can have enough even of kreplach. Daughter, you did it yourself. When Esther went to the kitchen to make tea, I learned from her father that she had had a husband in Russia, a Polish Jew who had volunteered in the Red Army and perished in the war. Here in New York, she was courted by a refugee, a former smuggler in Germany who had opened a bookbinding factory and become rich. Persuade her to marry him, Boris Merkin said to me. It would be good for me, too. Maybe she doesn't love him. There is no such thing as love. Give me a cigarette. In the camp, people climbed on one another like worms. I had invited Esther to supper, but she called to say she had the grip and must remain in bed. Then in a few days' time, a situation arose that made me leave for Israel. On the way back, I stopped over in London and Paris. I wanted to write to Esther, but I had lost her address. When I returned to New York, I tried to call her, but there was no telephone listing for Boris Merkin or Esther Merkin. Father and daughter must have been boarders in somebody else's apartment. Weeks passed and she did not show up in the cafeteria. I asked the group about her. Nobody knew where she was. She has most probably married that bookbinder, I said to myself. One evening I went to the cafeteria with the premonition that I would find Esther there. I saw a black wall and boarded windows. The cafeteria had burned. The old bachelors were no doubt meeting in another cafeteria, or an automat, but where? To search is not in my nature. I had plenty of complications without Esther. The summer passed. It was winter. Late one day, I walked by the cafeteria and again saw lights, a counter, guests. The owners had rebuilt. I entered, took a check, and saw Esther sitting alone at a table reading a Yiddish newspaper. She did not notice me, and I observed her for a while. She wore a man's fur fez and a jacket trimmed with a faded fur collar. She looked pale, as though recuperating from a sickness. Could that grip have been the start of a serious illness? I went over to her table and asked, What's new in buttons? She started and smiled. Then she called out, Miracles do happen. Where have you been? Where did you disappear to, she replied. I thought you were still abroad. Where are our cafeteria nicks? They now go to the cafeteria on 57th Street and 8th Avenue. They only reopened this place yesterday. May I bring you a cup of coffee? I drink too much coffee. All right. 
I went to get her coffee and a large egg cookie. While I stood at the counter, I turned my head and looked at her. Esther had taken off her mannish fur hat and smoothed her hair. She folded the newspaper, which meant that she was ready to talk. She got up and tilted the other chair against the table as a sign that the seat was taken. When I sat down, Esther said, You left without saying goodbye, and there I was, about to knock at the pearly gates of heaven. What happened? Oh, the grip became pneumonia. They gave me penicillin, and I am one of those who cannot take it. I got a rash all over my body. My father, too, is not well. What's the matter with your father? High blood pressure. He had a kind of stroke, and his mouth became all crooked. Oh, I'm sorry. You still work with buttons? Yes, with buttons. At least I don't have to use my head, only my hands. I can think my own thoughts. What do you think about? What not? The other workers are all Puerto Ricans. They rattle away in Spanish from morning to night. Who takes care of your father? Who? Nobody. I come home in the evening to make supper. He has one desire, to marry me off for my own good and perhaps for his comfort. But I can't marry a man I don't love. What is love? You ask me. You write novels about it. But you're a man. I assume you really don't know what it is. A woman is a piece of merchandise to you. To me, a man who talks nonsense or smiles like an idiot is repulsive. I would rather die than live with him. And a man who goes from one woman to another is not for me. I don't want to share with anybody. I'm afraid a time is coming when everybody will. That is not for me. What kind of person was your husband? How did you know I had a husband? My father, I suppose. The minute I leave the room, he prattles. My husband believed in things and was ready to die for them. He was not exactly my type, but I respected him and loved him, too. He wanted to die, and he died like a hero. What else can I say? And the others? There were no others. Men were after me. The way people behaved in the war, you will never know. They lost all shame. On the bunks near me one time, a mother lay with one man and her daughter with another. People were like beasts, worse than beasts. In the middle of it all, I dreamed about love. Now I have even stopped dreaming. The men who come here are terrible bores. Most of them are half mad, too. One of them tried to read me a 40-page poem. I almost fainted. I wouldn't read you anything I'd written. I've been told how you behave, no. No is no. Drink your coffee. You don't even try to persuade me. Most men around here plague you, and you can't get rid of them. In Russia, people suffered, but I have never met as many maniacs there as in New York City. The building where I live is a madhouse. My neighbors are lunatics. They accuse each other of all kinds of things. They sing, cry, break dishes. One of them jumped out of the window and killed herself. She was having an affair with a boy 20 years younger. In Russia, the problem was to escape the lice. Here, you're surrounded by insanity. We drank coffee and shared the egg cookie. Esther put down her cup. I can't believe that I'm sitting with you at this table. I read all your articles under all your pen names. You tell so much about yourself, I have the feeling I've known you for years. Still, you are a riddle to me. Men and women can never understand one another. 
No, I cannot understand my own father. Sometimes he is a complete stranger to me. He won't live long. Is he so sick? It's everything together. He's lost the will to live. Why live without legs, without friends, without a family? They have all perished. He sits and reads the newspapers all day long. He acts as though he were interested in what's going on in the world. His ideals are gone, but he still hopes for a just revolution. How can a revolution help him? I myself never put my hopes in any movement or party. How can we hope when everything ends in death? Hope in itself is a proof that there is no death. Yes, I know you often write about this. For me, death is the only comfort. What do the dead do? They continue to drink coffee and eat egg cookies? They still read newspapers? A life after death would be nothing but a joke. Some of the cafeterianics came back to the rebuilt cafeteria. New people appeared, all of them Europeans. They launched into long discussions in Yiddish, Polish, Russian, even Hebrew. Some of those who came from Hungary mixed German, Hungarian, Yiddish-German. Then all of a sudden they began to speak plain Galician Yiddish. They asked to have their coffee in glasses and held lumps of sugar between their teeth when they drank. Many of them were my readers. They introduced themselves and reproached me for all kinds of literary errors. I contradicted myself, went too far in descriptions of sex, described Jews in such a way that anti-Semites could use it for propaganda. They told me their experiences in the ghettos, in the Nazi concentration camps in Russia. They pointed out one another. Do you see that fellow? In Russia, he immediately became a Stalinist. He denounced his own friends. Here in America, he has switched to anti-Bolshevism. The one who was spoken about seemed to sense that he was being maligned, because the moment my informant left, he took his cup of coffee and his rice pudding, sat down at my table, and said, Don't believe a word of what you are told. They invent all kinds of lies. What could you do in a country where the rope was always around your neck? You had to adjust yourself if you wanted to live and not perish somewhere in Kazakhstan. Get a bowl of soup or a place to stay. You had to sell your soul. There was a table with a group of refugees who ignored me. They were not interested in literature and journalism, but strictly in business. In Germany, they had been smugglers. They seemed to be doing some shady business here, too. They whispered to one another and winked, counted their money, wrote long lists of numbers. Somebody pointed out one of them. He had a store in Auschwitz. What do you mean a store? God help us. He kept his merchandise in the straw where he slept. A rotten potato, sometimes a piece of soap, a tin spoon, a little fat. Still, he did business. Later in Germany, he became such a big smuggler, they once took $40,000 away from him. Sometimes months passed between my visits to the cafeteria. A year or two had gone by, perhaps three or four, I lost count, and Esther did not show up. I asked about her a few times. Someone said that she was going to the cafeteria on 42nd Street. Another had heard that she was married. I learned that some of the cafeteria nicks had died. They were beginning to settle down in the United States, had remarried, opened businesses, workshops, even had children again. 
Then came cancer or a heart attack. The result of the Hitler and Stalin years, it was said. One day I entered the cafeteria and saw Esther. She was sitting alone at a table. It was the same Esther. She was even wearing the same fur hat, but a strand of gray hair fell over her forehead. How strange. The fur hat, too, seemed to have grayed. The other cafeteria nicks did not appear to be interested in her anymore, or they did not know her. Her face told of the time that had passed. There were shadows under her eyes. Her gaze was no longer so clear. Around her mouth was an expression that could be called bitterness, disenchantment. I greeted her. She smiled, but her smile immediately faded away. I asked, What happened to you? Oh, I'm still alive. May I sit down? Please, certainly. May I bring you a cup of coffee? No. Well, if you insist. I noticed that she was smoking, and also that she was reading not the newspaper to which I contribute, but a competition paper. She had gone over to the enemy. I brought her coffee and for myself, stewed prunes, a remedy for constipation. I sat down. Where were you all this time? I have asked for you. Really? Thank you. What happened? Nothing good. She looked at me. I knew that she saw in me what I saw in her, the slow wilting of the flesh. She said, You have no hair, but you are white. For a while we were silent. Then I said, your father? And as I said it, I knew that her father was not alive. Esther said, He has been dead for almost two years. Do you still sort buttons? No, I became an operator in a dress shop. What happened to you personally, may I ask? Oh, nothing, absolutely nothing. You will not believe it, but I was sitting here thinking about you. I have fallen into some kind of trap. I don't know what to call it. I thought perhaps you could advise me. Do you still have the patience to listen to the troubles of little people like me? No, I didn't mean to insult you. I even doubted you would remember me. To make it short, I work, but work is growing more difficult for me. I suffer from arthritis. I feel as if my bones would crack. I wake up in the morning and can't sit up. One doctor tells me that it's a disc in my back. Others try to cure my nerves. One took x-rays and says that I have a tumor. He wanted me to go to the hospital for a few weeks, but I'm in no hurry for an operation. Suddenly, a little lawyer showed up. He is a refugee himself and is connected with the German government. You know they're now giving reparation money. It's true that I escaped to Russia, but I'm a victim of the Nazis just the same. Besides, they don't know my biography so exactly. I could get a pension plus a few thousand dollars, but my dislocated disc is no good for the purpose because I got it later, after the camps. This lawyer says my only chance is to convince them that I am ruined psychically. It's the bitter truth, but how can you prove it? The German doctors, the neurologists, the psychiatrists require proof. Everything has to be according to the textbooks. Just so and no different. 
the lawyer wants me to play insane. Naturally, he gets 20% of the reparation money. Maybe more. Why he needs so much money, I don't understand. He's already in his 70s, an old bachelor. He tried to make love to me and whatnot. He's half Meshuggah himself. But how can I play insane when actually I am insane? The whole thing revolts me, and I'm afraid it will really drive me crazy. I hate swindle. But this shyster pursues me. I don't sleep. When the alarm rings in the morning, I wake up as shattered as I used to be in Russia when I had to walk in the forest and saw logs at four in the morning. Naturally, I take sleeping pills. If I didn't, I couldn't sleep at all. That is more or less the situation. Why don't you get married? You're still a good-looking woman. Well, the old question. There is nobody. It's too late. If you knew how I felt, you wouldn't ask such a question. A few weeks passed. Snow had been falling. After the snow came rain, then frost. I stood at my window and looked out at Broadway. The passers-by half walked, half slipped. Cars moved slowly. The sky above the roof shone violet without a moon, without stars. And even though it was eight o'clock in the evening, the light and the emptiness reminded me of dawn. The stores were deserted. For a moment, I had the feeling I was in Warsaw. The telephone rang, and I rushed to answer it, as I did 10, 20, 30 years ago, still expecting the good tidings that a telephone call was about to bring me. I said hello, but there was no answer, and I was seized by the fear that some evil power was trying to keep back the good news at the last minute. Then I heard a stammering. A woman's voice muttered my name. Yes, it is I. Excuse me for disturbing you. My name is Esther. We met a few weeks ago in the cafeteria. Esther, I exclaimed. I don't know how I got the courage to phone you. I need to talk to you about something. Naturally, if you have the time and... Please forgive my presumption. No presumption. Would you like to come to my apartment? If I will not be interrupting. It's difficult to talk in the cafeteria. It's noisy, and there are eavesdroppers. What I want to tell you is a secret. I wouldn't trust to anyone else. Please, come up. I gave Esther directions. Then I tried to make order in my apartment, but I soon realized this was impossible. Letters, manuscripts lay around on tables and chairs. In the corners, books and magazines were piled high. I opened the closets and threw inside whatever was under my hand. Jackets, pants, shirts, shoes, slippers. I picked up an envelope and saw, to my amazement, that it had never been opened. I tore it open and found a check. What's the matter with me? Have I lost my mind? I said out loud. I tried to read the letter that came with the check, but I had misplaced my glasses. My fountain pen was gone, too. Well, and where were my keys? I heard a bell ring, and I didn't know whether it was the door or the telephone. I opened the door and saw Esther. It must have been snowing again, because her hat and the shoulders of her coat were trimmed with white. I asked her in, and my neighbor, the divorcee, who spied on me openly with no shame, and God knows with no sense of purpose, opened her door and stared at my new guest. Esther removed her boots and I took her coat and put it on the case of the Encyclopedia Britannica. I shoved a few manuscripts off the sofa so she could sit down. I said, in my house there is sheer chaos. 
It doesn't matter. I sat in an armchair strewn with socks and handkerchiefs. For a while, we spoke about the weather, about the danger of being out in New York at night, even early in the evening. Then Esther said, Do you remember the time I spoke to you about my lawyer, that I had to go to a psychiatrist because of the reparation money? Yes, I remember. I didn't tell you everything. It was too wild. It still seems unbelievable, even to me. Don't interrupt me, I implore you. I'm not completely healthy. I may even say that I'm sick, but I know the difference between fact and illusion. I haven't slept for nights, and I kept wondering whether I should call you or not. I decided not to, but this evening it occurred to me that if I couldn't trust you with a thing like this, then there is no one I could talk to. I read you, and I know that you have a sense of the great mysteries. Esther said all this stammering and with pauses. For a moment her eyes smiled, and then they became deeply sad and wavering. I said, you can tell me everything. I'm afraid that you'll think me insane. I swear I will not. Esther bit her lower lip. I want you to know that I saw Hitler, she said. Even though I was prepared for something unusual, my throat constricted. When? Where? You see, you are frightened already. It happened three years ago, almost four. I saw him here on Broadway. On the street? In the cafeteria. I tried to swallow the lump in my throat. Most probably someone resembling him, I said finally. I knew you would say that. But remember, you've promised to listen. You recall the fire in the cafeteria? Yes, certainly. The fire has to do with it. Since you don't believe me anyhow, why draw it out? It happened this way. That night I didn't sleep. Usually when I can't sleep, I get up and make tea, or I try to read a book. But this time some power commanded me to get dressed and go out. I can't explain to you how I dared walk on Broadway at that late hour. It must have been two or three o'clock. I reached the cafeteria thinking perhaps it stays open all night. I tried to look in, but the large window was covered by a curtain. There was a pale glow inside. I tried the revolving door, and it turned. I went in and saw a scene I will not forget to the last day of my life. The tables were shoved together, and around them sat men in white robes, like doctors or orderlies, all with swastikas on their sleeves. At the head sat Hitler. I beg you to hear me out. Even a deranged person sometimes deserves to be listened to. They all spoke German. They didn't see me. They were busy with the Fuhrer. It grew quiet, and he started to talk. That abominable voice. I heard it many times on the radio. I didn't make out exactly what he said. I was too terrified to take it in. Suddenly, one of his henchmen looked back at me and jumped up from his chair. How I came out alive, I will never know. I ran with all my strength, and I was trembling all over. When I got home, I said to myself, Esther, you are not right in the head. I still don't know how I lived through that night. The next morning, I didn't go straight to work, but walked to the cafeteria to see if it was really there. 
Such an experience makes a person doubt his own senses. When I arrived, I found the place had burned down. When I saw this, I knew it had to do with what I had seen. Those who were there wanted all traces erased. These are the plain facts. I have no reason to fabricate such queer things. We were both silent. Then I said, You had a vision. What do you mean, a vision? The past is not lost. An image from years ago remained present somewhere in the fourth dimension, and it reached you just at that moment. As far as I know, Hitler never wore a long white robe. Perhaps he did. Why did the cafeteria burn down just that night? Esther asked. It could be that the fire evoked the vision. There was no fire then. Somehow I foresaw that you would give me this kind of explanation. If this was a vision, my sitting here with you is also a vision. It couldn't have been anything else. Even if Hitler is living and is hiding out in the United States, he is not likely to meet his cronies at a cafeteria on Broadway. Besides, the cafeteria belongs to a Jew. I saw him as I am seeing you now. You had a glimpse back in time. Well, let it be so. But since then, I've had no rest. I keep thinking about it. If I am destined to lose my mind, this will drive me to it. The telephone rang and I jumped up with a start. It was a wrong number. I sat down again. What about the psychiatrist your lawyer sent you to? Tell it to him and you'll get full compensation. Esther looked at me sidewise and unfriendly. I know what you mean. I haven't fallen that low yet. I was afraid that Esther would continue to call me. I even planned to change my telephone number. But weeks and months passed, and I never heard from her or saw her. I didn't go to the cafeteria, but I often thought about her. How can the brain produce such nightmares? What goes on in that little marrow behind the skull? And what guarantee do I have that the same sort of thing will not happen to me? And how do we know that the human species will not end like this? I've played with the idea that all of humanity suffers from schizophrenia. Along with the atom, the personality of Homo sapiens has been splitting. When it comes to technology, the brain still functions, but in everything else, degeneration has begun. They are all insane. The communists, the fascists, the preachers of democracy, the writers, the painters, the clergy, the atheists. Soon, technology, too, will disintegrate. Buildings will collapse. Power plants will stop generating electricity. Generals will drop atomic bombs on their own populations. Mad revolutionaries will run in the streets crying fantastic slogans. I have often thought that it would begin in New York. This metropolis has all the symptoms of a mind gone berserk. But since insanity has not yet taken over altogether, one has to act as though there were still order, according to Vyinger's principle of, quote, as if. I continued with my scribbling. I delivered manuscripts to the publisher. I lectured. Four times a year I sent checks to the federal government, the state. What was left after my expenses I put in the savings bank. The teller entered some numbers in my bank book, and this meant that I was provided for, 
Somebody printed a few lines in a magazine or newspaper, and this signified that my value as a writer had gone up. I saw with amazement that all my efforts turned into paper. My apartment was one big waste paper basket. From day to day, all this paper was getting drier and more parched. I woke up at night fearful that it would ignite. There was not an hour when I did not hear the sirens of fire engines. A year after I had last seen Esther, I was going to Toronto to read a paper about Yiddish in the second half of the 19th century. I put a few shirts in my valise as well as papers of all kinds, among them one that made me a citizen of the United States. I had enough paper money in my pocket to pay for a taxi to Grand Central. But the taxi seemed to be taken. Those that were not refused to stop. Didn't the driver see me? Had I suddenly become one of those who see and are not seen? I decided to take the subway. On my way, I saw Esther. She was not alone, but with someone I had known years ago, soon after I arrived in the United States. He was a frequenter of a cafeteria on East Broadway. He used to sit at a table, express opinions, criticize, grumble. He was a small man with sunken cheeks the color of bricks and bulging eyes. He was angry at the new writers. He belittled the old ones. He rolled his own cigarettes and dropped ashes into the plates from which we ate. Almost two decades had passed since I had last seen him. Suddenly he appears with Esther. He was even holding her arm. I had never seen Esther look so well. She was wearing a new coat, a new hat. She smiled at me and nodded. I wanted to stop her, but my watch showed that it was late. I barely managed to catch the train. In my bedroom, the bed was already made. I undressed and went to sleep. In the middle of the night, I awoke. My car was being switched, and I almost fell out of bed. I could not sleep anymore, and I tried to remember the name of the little man I had seen with Esther. But I was unable to. The thing I did remember was that even 30 years ago, he had been far from young. He had come to the United States in 1905 after the revolution in Russia. In Europe, he had a reputation as a speaker and public figure. How old must he be now? According to my calculations, he had to be in the late 80s, perhaps even 90. Is it possible that Esther could be intimate with such an old man? But this evening he had not looked old. The longer I brooded about it in the darkness, the stranger the encounter seemed to me. I even imagined that I had read somewhere in a newspaper that he had died. Do corpses walk around on Broadway? This would mean that Esther, too, was not living. I raised the window shade and sat up and looked out into the night. Black, impenetrable, without a moon. A few stars ran along with the train for a while, and then they disappeared. A lighted factory emerged. I saw machines, but no operators. Then it was swallowed in the darkness, and another group of stars began to follow the train. I felt confused and shaken. I was turning with the earth on its axis. I was circling with it around the sun and moving in the direction of a constellation whose name I had forgotten. Is there no death, or is there no life? I thought about what Esther had told me of seeing Hitler in the cafeteria. It had seemed utter nonsense. 
but now I began to reappraise the idea. If time and space are nothing more than forms of perception, as Kant argues, inequality, quantity, causality are only categories of thinking, why shouldn't Hitler confer with his Nazis in a cafeteria on Broadway? Esther didn't sound insane. She had seen a piece of reality that the heavenly censorship prohibits as a rule. She had caught a glimpse behind the curtain of the phenomena. I regretted that I had not asked for more details. In Toronto, I had little time to ponder these matters. But when I returned to New York, I went to the cafeteria for some private investigation. I met only one man I knew, a rabbi who had become an agnostic and given up his job. I asked him about Esther. He said, the pretty little woman who used to come here? Yes. I heard that she committed suicide. When? How? I don't know. Perhaps we are not speaking about the same person. No matter how many questions I asked and how much I described Esther, everything remained vague. Some young woman who used to come here had turned on the gas and made an end of herself. That was all the ex-rabbi could tell me. I decided not to rest until I knew for certain what had happened to Esther, and also to that half-writer, half-politician I remembered from East Broadway. But I grew busier from day to day. The cafeteria closed. The neighborhood changed. Years have passed, and I have never seen Esther again. Yes, corpses do walk on Broadway. But why did Esther choose that particular corpse? She could have got a better bargain even in this world. That was Rivka Galchin reading The Cafeteria by Isaac Bashevis Singer. The story was published in The New Yorker in December of 1968 and was included in Singer's collection A Friend of Kafka in 1970 and in the collected stories published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Rivka, as you were saying, this main character, Aaron, somehow manages not to pursue the story that he seems to be most interested in. Why do you think we get this story, the story of Esther, from his perspective? Why didn't Singer let her tell it? That way you get, I guess, you get a double story. You're able to triangulate on Esther and feel that you're perceiving things about her that the narrator is missing. But it's also a portrait of a man who 
is held up by himself and by others as kind of being able to tell these people's stories. And he seems just as petty and limited and also wounded that he doesn't go into his personal history. He leaves you several clues like that strange moment when he answers the phone and is waiting for good news from decades ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's just these moving moments where you get both to see the writer more fully and also he kind of wants you to see him as a kind of failure, that he's a very successful man and in his own eyes fails to be able to really pay attention because it's an almost impossible task to properly pay attention to this history that is too difficult to look at directly. And that, in a sense, humor, it's not just like one way of getting at it. It might be for him and for his psyche the only way to say something accurate and have it go by quickly enough that you can then, like, recover and be like the zebras who, you know, have just had a member killed and then keep grazing. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because he is very singer-like in a lot of details. And then uh, not in others. I mean, this man is actually on a personal level quite a failure. He's an old bachelor. He lives in a slovenly apartment. He's not very decent to Esther. He thinks about changing his phone number to get away from her. (laughs) And as you say, he's refusing to see things about her. He's refusing to see things around him. What is he afraid of seeing? I guess I'm afraid of answering the question. (laughs) But it it does seem to do with the size of the pain is neither describable nor manageable, even in his own life. Like there's that moment when he has a check in his apartment in an envelope he never opened. And, you know, is that just a detail that's letting us know that he's so fortunate that he can sort of have an unopened check and it's he won't notice? Or is it a reparations check and he can't even acknowledge that it's in the apartment and he keeps his apartment a mess just to not see it. Like sometimes the character is approached by others as if he hadn't really been in the Holocaust and he chooses not to mention his family. He chooses not to mention his background. It just seems like there's a huge space he can't go into. Mm -hmm. Whereas the divorcee across the hall who spies on him, you know, one of these sort of... With no purpose. With no purpose. (laughs) you know, gets page space. And so I sort of feel like the character is a man who is working pretty hard to be in the present moment Mm -hmm. and to not slide back. But he, like everyone else, gets confused. People who are alive seem to be dead and people who are dead seem to be alive. And it's a kind of difficult landscape. So he just keeps moving. Now, Esther, as a character, when she first pops up in the story, she's described as still gay, right? She's just come from Russian prison camps, German Holocaust camps, and yet she's still gay and sort of has some vitality about her. She's flirtatious. She's all this. Life as an immigrant in New York seems to tear her apart. What do you think happens? To your earlier point, it's part of what the narrator had the opportunity to watch and sees happening to people in the cafeteria all the time and doesn't quite catch on because he's one of the ones who was saved both from the Holocaust and from immigrant life in New York. And in a sense, she does appear to be a character who people are drawn to and you imagine they sort of want to help. But I read her as a character who... There's maybe some sort of post-survival euphoria in the beginning that that then dissipates. It's hard to know, but it seems... Some sort of flash of life is there and then can't keep 
outpacing the past. Right. I mean, Singer even raises this idea of this delayed effect in the story. There's these refugees who settle in America and get married and have children and jobs and then suddenly die of cancer or heart attack, which... They attribute to the past. Which is attributed to Stalin or Hitler. And that's um, both a joke, but also seems absolutely straightforwardly true or honest. Right. I mean, there's a way in which these lives are forever haunted by what's happened. And in Esther's case, she's quite literally haunted by Hitler. And in a way, you could probably make a case for the idea that Hitler causes Esther's death by appearing on the cafeteria. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> or, or the kind of more metaphysical explanations that he sort of tries to steer her into just because they sort of are less dissonant with the way we like to think about reality. It's still the case that he caused her death in this telling of the story because whether he was present in the cafeteria in that year or present in the cafeteria because the past is always present with us and we're present with her, it's sort of indifferent if you just look at the effect of it. She first turns to Aaron and wants to talk to him because he understands the mysteries of life or he, you know, he works with the great mysteries. And of course, he doesn't really want to work with mystery. But I I thought that argument they have about life after death, where Aaron says that hope in itself is proof that there's no death. And Esther says a life after death would be nothing but a joke. And there's that beautiful way in which her description of what might happen in the life after death is that people have coffee and egg cookies. (laughs) It's unclear whether that should be like a fantastic thing. You get to have more coffee and egg cookies or whether I think he does a I hate that word brave. But in the story, the way that the characters in the cafeteria are not depicted as heroic survivors, although it does seem heroic just to live the kind of comic lives they're living But they're sort of wonderfully have the license to also be petty and say terrible things about each other and be preoccupied Mm -hmm. with prestige and even his prestige. And that seems to be something that oscillates in the story. On the one hand, it seems so wonderful that the zebras just go back to grazing and everyone goes back to their sort of petty and fighting amongst one another. And it seems terrifying. And I feel like Esther oscillates and ends up on the sort of terrifying side of egg cookies and coffee being a kind of frightful vision. Right, when in fact she has a much more frightful vision, these men in swastikas and what is meant to be her safe place. And I wonder if that sort of life after death for Hitler is the joke, or even her coming back and appearing to Aaron on the arms of this really unlikable guy he doesn't want to remember. You know, and that's a bit of a joke, that life after death. It's also a fantastic joke that that's what he's preoccupied by, is why is she with him? She could be with someone like me. Yeah, she could be with someone better, but he never followed up. You know, she kisses him the first time she meets him, and somehow he can never recover from that or go anywhere with it. And it's so sad that the way he finds her attractive is because she praises his writing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's probably true of a lot of writers. (laughs) With the story, I grapple a little with why he doesn't pursue her, because he is attracted to her, and she's attracted to him. And he goes to her house and meets her father and so on and he wants to know things about her and he asks people about her but you mentioned the idea that Aaron never touches on whether or not he was in the Holocaust. Singer got out of Europe in 1935 and probably had a fair amount of survivor's guilt when faced with the people who actually did suffer through it and I wonder if that's maybe what's at play in this relationship that there's a man who 
didn't experience it and feels a little guilty because he's surrounded by people who did. I think that absolutely must be part of it. And I think that seems like an, a preoccupation of singers in other work, the clown that somehow survived. And even apart from the Holocaust, just the way that he starts a story on money and sort of saying that he's financially very comfortable. Except and, he has to pay it all in taxes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but at least he has enough to pay so much in taxes. And even just the survivor guilt of being in that neighborhood and someone who doesn't have to eat at the cafeteria but wants to eat at the cafeteria and someone who travels the world and everyone is seeking his opinion. And just that level of guilt also seems to permeate the story. And to be close or intimate with Esther would be to be for too long or perhaps too intensely in touch with another path, like a less lucky path. On the one hand, he has that capacity and he talks to the father and he likes to draw the father out and, and he does talk to Esther. On the other hand, he doesn't have the capacity to sustain it. And the story has set up a parallel, which I hesitate even to mention, but I feel the story is asking. It's the dark side of the kind of Seinfeld to total story through line. It's making an argument that there's some element of the same ordinary human pettiness being what could be stoked and lead to something like the Holocaust. That there's some sort of there's some sort of through line there. Well, it's interesting that you know Singer in the story is quite obsessed with this pettiness, but not just now in the cafeteria. But he talks about the smugglers in the camps, the guy who had a shop in his bunk selling old crusts, and he makes clear that this happens even in the direst of circumstances that people behave badly or take advantage. It's interesting to see that thrown in, you know, the man who had a store in Auschwitz. <laughs> and it is thrown in like a terrifying punchline in a certain way. And it's thrown in with a parallel to the people sitting at the table still mm -hmm. doing the same job in another setting and the same element of their character being dominant. I do think there is something about the joke that he solved the way that it can contain these things efficiently so that he can sort of have the vision and then recover from the vision, whereas Esther has the vision, and it is sort of a joke, but she can't really recover from the vision. It's sort of, it doesn't pass. There's a lot like the beat, and then it moves on to something else. And I, and I sort of feel like the story gives us the luxury of having a little quiver of insight that we're then allowed to let go of because it's almost too much work to hold on to it. I think his choice of name for Esther is interesting. I mean, Esther in the Old Testament actually averts a massacre of Jews. She, By getting married to someone she doesn't necessarily love. <laughs> yeah, she's. I mean, she's married him, and she goes to him sort of at risk to herself and gets him to cancel this genocide. And, of course, this Esther couldn't prevent anything. Do you think there was significance to that choice of name? Well, there must be. You can't yeah. give someone the name Esther yeah. without it being Esther. But it's, I wonder if the significance is in the sort of half rhyme of the capacity, because this Esther is not married to a king. She was married to an idealist, and she... She won't is, marry the man she won't, with power. <laughs> she won't marry the man with power. She kind of won't make the compromised decision. I mean, on the one hand, the story of Esther is, just, for the most part, the story of her risking her life to try and save the Jewish people. But, of course, another way the story gets told to you in Sunday school 
was that she married a Gentile, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, like, it was sort of a radical thing, but her uncle was like, no, this will be good. <laughs> and, It'll be good for the Jews. <laughs> so I think it's kind of like a, it's a nicely difficult position. And Esther, of course, in this story, never gets out of her difficult position. Except in death. She's sort of... She's fresh again. She's fresh again, with, but with a kind of awful person, well, right? Well, you know? I mean, I guess an angry person. That's yeah. true. <laughs> but we never actually know for sure how she died. No, and it wouldn't really be that hard to find out. And he no. doesn't. And he won't find out, which is, again, that the psychological usefulness that maybe one day the phone will ring and it'll be Esther. He's someone who's sort of surrounded by a gallery of the wounded who are all going to die in some way or other, and maybe it's just too much for him to encompass. It would be interesting to know <laughs> if he's right, or if, in fact, perhaps she was alive and appearing with this other writer who was alive. Or alive and appearing with someone who only resembled that other writer, you know, <laughs> and that it was his own sort of petty vision that had to see her romantic choice as someone necessarily less than him or pettier yeah. than him. Well, there's so much in the story. You know, there's, there, there's death and madness and corruption and mysticism and this idea of a sort of break in the space-time continuum and so on. What do you think it should leave us with? You know, what I love about this story is that the formal structure does not prepare you for the vision of Hitler. I mean, it does prepare you, but the way that it sort of holds off and holds off, because I often imagine the bad ways I would write a story. And if I had that idea, I would just be like, well, let's put it right on the front because it's so good. And then, you know, we'll have everyone's attention. There's Hitler at the cafeteria. And so I feel that the story invites us to exit it in a way that is different than the way the narrator exits it. So he makes us very aware that the narrator kind of is tamping down and wants to close off his interest in Esther's vision and even whether or not Esther is alive, which really pushes the reader to be in the world of ghosts and in the world where even the living are sort of ghosts walking up and down Broadway. And so I feel that the story asks us to, or kind of leaves us in a space that's haunted in a life-after-death way that is nice. Like, it's actually a kind of comforting idea to think that people are still having their coffee and their egg cookies. And that strip of uh, New York is still haunted. I mean, so much of the character of that neighborhood, of course, the storefronts have changed, but um, it's still Zabar's. <laughs> it's still, it still has that feel from this moment decades earlier that Singer is describing. Well, thank you so much, Rivka. Thank you, Deborah. Isaac Bashevis Singer emigrated from Poland to the U.S. in 1935. He was the author of more than two dozen novels and short story collections, including Gimple the Fool and Other Stories, The Magician of Lublin, Enemies, A Love Story, and Shadows on the Hudson. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1978, and he died in 1991. Rivka Galchin is the author of the novel Atmospheric Disturbances and the story collection American Innovations. Her most recent story for The New Yorker, Usul at the Stadium, was published in October. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of the New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Online and in the digital edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.